0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bible or your phone or your device and meet me in Genesis chapter 3. We're going right back to the top. You can't miss it. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you, and it's page 3 in that Bible. We started a new sermon series last week that we called Renovations, Being Transformed to Be Like Jesus. We do have a study guide to go with this one, which we usually do for our our big sermon series. And the study guide is here just to help take Sunday morning deeper. There's only so much ground we can cover in a sermon on a Sunday morning. So there's more scripture to dig into. There's some questions to reflect on. Uh, We're always looking at how do we apply the scripture to our actual lives. And there's questions in there to help you do that. So we encourage you to grab one of those at the Hub for $5. And a lot of our life groups are doing them as well as their curriculum. And if you're not in a life group, we would love to see you jump into a life group. These are our midweek groups that go deeper and study together and get... It's a great place to get to know other people, and there's information about that at the hub as well. But we're talking about renovations, being transformed to be like Jesus. Uh, Different streams of the church call this process uh, different things. We are saved the day we say yes to Jesus, and then one day we will be glorified when we see Jesus face-to-face, and the in-between time of when we are saved from our sin and transformed completely to be entirely like him in his presence, there's this process journey that happens. There is this work in progress going on that sometimes gets called sanctification, to be made holy. It sometimes gets called regeneration. It sometimes gets called discipleship. It's all talking about the same thing, of how are we becoming more like Jesus. We, in our series, are calling it spiritual formation. And the reason we like this term is the emphasis is that it's the Holy Spirit doing the transformation in us. We can't transform ourselves. The Holy Spirit is doing the work, and like a potter works with clay, we've all got rough edges that need to be shaped off. We've all got work that needs to be done and the Holy Spirit does the work in our lives in this series we want to take some time to talk about how that happens and how can we connect with the Holy Spirit in a way that can help us to be formed as he does his work in our lives and so as we look at this uh, one of our key scriptures is Romans 8:29 which says for those whom God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed or transformed to the image of his son that is our goal we want to be more like Jesus and we don't want it to just be where by our own efforts we are trying harder to to obey Jesus or trying harder to follow after his ways. We're actually wanting to be changed and we are promised that God will change us so that we actually become more like Jesus. Not just people who work at being like Jesus, but people who actually become People like Jesus, who reflect the character of Christ. And so last week was a little bit of an overview on this whole idea of spiritual formation. And today, uh, we're going to go a little deep today. It's a bit of a heavier message because as we talk about what it is to be transformed into the image of Jesus, it's easy enough to say, okay, that's the goal. We are wanting to be more like him. But we also need to acknowledge what we're being transformed from. What are we being transformed from into the image of Jesus? And so we've been using this picture of renovations, that God wants to tear down the sin in our lives, tear down the bad character, tear out what is fleshy, tear out what is ungodly, and he wants to transform us into something that is good and holy and godly and pure. And it's not unlike in our house when we have to do a renovation project, where we want our kitchen to look new or our bathroom to look new or our flooring to look new or, or whatever. Uh, So in our house, we are, we've got lots of things we want to do in our house. There's a lot of stuff that's still original in our house from the beginning. And so we daydream about one day we'd like to do the bathroom and one day when we become millionaires, we can do the kitchen and things like that. But as we are processing those things, we, you know, we like to pay cash for things. And so uh, it all gets spaced out a lot. But There was a project we were looking at possibly doing this year, and so yesterday Sarah and I went up to Windsor, and we were doing some pricing and some shopping on different things, and it turns out it's just going to cost way more than we thought it was going to, so that'll be next year's project, or maybe the one after that. But that's an important part of renovations, is taking an honest assessment of where things are at. So if you look at your bathroom, or you look at your floors, or you look at your kitchen, you say, okay, what is the problem that needs solving, and how is that problem going to be solved, and what's it going to cost, and who's going to do it, and and how's that all going to work out? And so what we're going to focus on today in our lives, because we are God's renovation project, He is renovating us, We are going to focus on what the problem is. We're going to focus on what needs renovating. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity. As we focus on we are being formed into the image of Christ, but what is it we are being formed from? And in its simplest terms, what we are being formed from is sinners people who are bound and caught in sin. And so uh, it's not the funnest message this morning. There weren't a lot of amens today. Uh, You can beat the 9 o'clock, maybe, and show them up. But we want to take an honest assessment of of humanity's problem that God is fixing in Jesus. And so, again, we're going all the way back to the beginning. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Genesis chapter 3, page 3 in the Pew Bible. Buckle your seatbelts. We're reading the whole chapter this morning, and it's going to be amazing. So I should preface, before we get to Genesis 3. It'll get amazing in a couple minutes. Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth and everything that exists. So God creates everything. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. It is the first human relationship. It is the first marriage. And as God creates them and puts them in the garden, they are in perfect relationship with Him. They are face to face with Him. They have everything that they need from Him. And they're in perfect relationship with one another as well. Their relationship is perfect. It's the first and only perfect marriage that has ever existed. And as they walk with each other and they walk with God, God together gives them the command to rule. He says, go and rule over the earth. Subdue it. Be fruitful. Be multiply. They are, be fruitful and multiply. They are blessed by God to go out and take care of creation. And so they are working in the garden. There is work to do in stewarding creation, but uh, apparently it is perfect work. It is joyful work. It is work that overflows out of their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. And there are two trees in the Garden of Eden. One of them is the tree of life, and to eat of that tree is to live forever with God. And then the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree, God says, don't touch. If you touch that one, he says, you will die. And there's just consequences if you cross that boundary. That was the only commandment that they were given. That was the only boundary in place. And they were told, don't touch that tree. So as we move into Genesis 3, we are picking up that story. All right, now it's going to be awesome. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate, from, it ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's a heavy chapter. That's, that's not a get up and shout kind of chapter. And that's a chapter. I mean, if you're going to read one chapter that sums up humanity's problem, that is the chapter. Like, in a nutshell, that is it. And I have heard people say from time to time, like, oh, I wish I'd been in the garden. I wouldn't have done that. I would have listened to God. And I mean, the intention is good. But if that's what we're thinking, we're missing the story entirely. Because Adam and Eve's story is your story. The details are different but you and I have all done the exact same thing. There are boundaries that God has set that we have crossed. There are things he has said do not do that we have done. There are things that he has said do that we have not done. We have all made Adam and Eve's error. We have all done exactly what they did. We have been tempted and we have fallen into sin and we have walked away from what God wanted for us. The word of the Lord says in Isaiah, it puts it this way, Isaiah 53, 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. I mean, that's, that's what sin is. We have all said to God in one way or another, I'm not doing it. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going my own way. I'm doing what's best for me. I'm doing my own thing. It is the universal human problem. We have all done it. Adam and Eve's story is our story. And as we go through the text today, we're not going to hit every single verse, just because there's lots of verses in there, but we're going to hit some of the highlights. And our job today is to see where are we in this story. What is God speaking to us about our own sin and our own actions that we can learn from Adam and Eve's story? So starting in verse 4. Uh, As the serpent shows up, we know from Scripture as it unfolds that uh, it's an unusual passage because it seems to be literally a snake. And at the same time, we know from later passages of Scripture, just in case we were unclear, that this is the devil. This is the enemy. This is the tempter. And Jesus said he was the father of all lies. He's been lying since the beginning, uh, completely untrustworthy. And so the tempter shows up and starts sowing some doubt in between Uh, People and God he starts making them question some things and so when the tempter shows up and says oh Can you really not eat any tree in the garden like that? Wasn't what God said at all, but he's starting to sow his venom his deception is starting to work Uh, Eve says we're not supposed to touch this one tree or or if we do we will die verse 4 you will not certainly die The servant said to the woman for God knows that when you eat from it Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil and it's just the slimiest, shadiest thing. Because everything he's saying here is a lie. None of this is true. And it just starts, you won't die. There's no consequences to this. You know, God's holding out on you. God knows if you eat that, you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And what he's not saying is the minute you disobey God, you've crossed the line from good into evil. So he's not telling the whole story, and he's just, again, the venom is doing its work. There's all sorts of lying going on, and of course the woman is going to get caught up in it, as is Adam, as are all of us. This is the same temptation that faces us. The same types of things are the same things we struggle with, and we all probably have some areas in our life of sin that are continual that we struggle with, but this temptation that started at the beginning, Satan doesn't have new tricks. It's the same stuff. He does it still now. And you might remember, at some point growing up, learning about the fire triangle. Do you remember learning about fire in school? My kids, a couple years ago, they were learning about fire safety. And Matt came home and said, Daddy, today I learned about stop, drop, and roll. And I was like, oh, that's good, buddy. And then I had a moment as a parent where like, I probably should have taught you that a while ago. I did not come up. You've been around a lot of bonfires in your life, and that has not been a part of the conversation. But the fire triangle is that there are three sides of this triangle and uh, all of them are needed in order for a fire to work if you take away any of them then the fire goes out and i think our temptation works a little bit that way so the fire triangle in the middle is that you need oxygen plus heat plus fuel And when you have all of those three things fire can happen but if you remove any of them if you remove the heat by dumping water on it or if you remove the oxygen by smothering it or if you take away the fuel source then the fire stops it needs all three in order for for fire to happen and the temptation that the enemy lays out in these few verses i think is really similar to that the first thing the enemy says to us is there's no consequences to your sin there's no consequences to this action If we understood the consequence of our sin we would never do it but in the moment all that logic and reason goes out the window and we believe that the thing I'm about to do is not gonna have any negative consequences whatsoever and later we will go oh why would I think that way but that's the nature of the enemy's temptation the nature of his temptation from the beginning he says to them you're not gonna die if you eat this thing there's no consequences to your sin And that's simply not true. There are consequences to our sin. There's reasons why God says, don't do these behaviors. And it's because the consequences are negative. Sin is bad for us. It's bad for our souls. It's bad for our relationships. It's bad for our walk with God. So Satan's first trick is, there's no consequences to what you want to do. The other trick is, there's an apparent benefit to it. He says to Eve, hey, this tree is going to bring good things into your life. And sin does that as well. Scripture talks about sin is pleasurable for a season. If sin didn't seem to offer us something, we'd never struggle with it. But the problem with sin is, it seems to offer us something. It seems to offer us some peace, or some fulfillment, or some security, or some significance, or some joy. Like, there is something about it that is appealing. And so from the beginning, Satan's been saying, your sin doesn't have any consequences. It's actually going to do something good for you. And then he says to Eve, and you know what, you're not even going to need God anymore, because you're going to be like him. And even if the the temptation isn't that blatant in our particular areas of sin, it's the same thing. Because sin happens whenever we look to things other than God for that fulfillment. Because God is there to give us that sense of peace. He's there to give us that security. He's there to give us that joy. He's there to give us that pleasure. Sin happens when we say, I'm not going to go to God for that stuff. I'm going to go to other things instead. And that will fulfill my need sin happens when we look to things other than God to fulfill those needs. Now, like the fire triangle, I think if we remove any one of these three things, temptation falls apart. And so part of this morning is let's be aware. Let's have our eyes open. Let's understand that if we're tempted to do something and we find ourselves thinking, well, there's no real consequences. No one's ever going to know. It's not going to affect anybody. I can keep this hidden. that That's the enemy's poison at work. But if we recognize my sin absolutely has consequences, it has consequences in lots of different ways, then we're not going to do that sin. So we want to be aware of how the enemy is tempting us. If we can see that the apparent benefit of that sin isn't actually a benefit at all, at the very best, it will offer us a temporary something, but also bring a lot of consequences as well. If we can realize our sin doesn't actually fulfill its promises of what it says it's going to do for us, it's a cheap substitute, then we're not going to sin either. And if we can stay tight in our relationship with God, if we can realize that nothing that the enemy offers is going to come close to what God can fulfill in our lives, then we're not going to sin either. If we can land on any one of these three things, the triangle falls apart if we can recognize that. And so part of this morning was just wanting to to lay that out there and just be aware that the same lies that the enemy's been telling, uh, again, Jesus said he's been a liar since the beginning. It's the same stuff that he pours onto us. It's the same stuff that he uses to tempt us into sin. And in Eve's case, and in our case, a lot of the times, it has worked. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So those lies worked, right? You're not going to die. She's like, okay, well, I'm not going to die. Then I might as well eat it. Oh, this fruit looks really good. There's a benefit to it. And I'm going to be gaining wisdom. I'll be like God. That all sounds incredible. And she falls into it. And again, don't judge her, because you and I do the same thing. We find ways to justify our sin. We find ways to go along with it. We find ways to make excuses. And... You know, Satan is there from the beginning wanting us to do that. Now here's the thing. We can't blame him for our sin. Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. There's an old joke that you can't hold me responsible. The devil made me do it. Right? The devil made me do it. And I came across a quote from a comedian this week. A Christian was giving him a hard time about something he had said and he fired back and said, you can't get mad at me as a Christian because the devil made me do it and you have to forgive me, Jesus said. So back off. But the devil made me do it doesn't work biblically, because he is the tempter, absolutely. He is the liar, for sure. He's been doing that since the beginning. But when James talks about this, he says, you know what? God can't tempt anybody. Even the devil can't really tempt anybody. James 1.14 says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. In other words, there are certain things that aren't tempting to you, right? There are certain sin struggles that just aren't yours. Right? Someone might be an alcoholic and someone else has no desire for alcohol whatsoever. The person who doesn't have that desire isn't gonna get dragged away and enticed into that sin. But we all have something. And so when sin happens, yes, the tempter is there, but all he's doing is exploiting what's there in us. He's exploiting the sin that's there, the evil that's there. And so we are entirely responsible for our own actions. We cannot say, the devil made me do it. We have to be aware of that because it is very easy to pass the buck, as we're going to see in a second. So as they sin, as they cross that line, all of a sudden everything changes. Scripture says before they'd been innocent and naked and and just free with God and with each other, and now they realize they're naked and there's shame and embarrassment involved, and so they're trying to cover themselves up. When they hear God coming, they run and hide, right? They were in perfect relationship with him before. That's gone away. They know they've screwed up, and their reaction is to run away from God and get away from him. So the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid, verse 8 and 10. So, so much for no consequences, right? The consequences kick in right away. They are aware that they've crossed the line. They're aware that they have sinned against God. They're aware that they're in a different state, and their reaction is instead of to, to draw near to the perfect God who had loved them and provided for them and been in perfect relationship with them, they are now running away from God. And sin does that to us. Isaiah 59, 2 says, your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. There is a a barrier that goes up. Now, in Jesus, we believe the separation has been taken away, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But even for those of us for whom that has been taken away, I think experientially, a lot of us can probably relate that when we're struggling with sin, you don't always want to pray in those moments. You don't always want to read your Bible. You don't always want to go to church. Right? It's just easy to, to back away and to start to hide and to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. So their perfect relationship with God gets broken. Not only does that perfect relationship get broken, their perfect relationship with each other gets broken. Because when God comes and says, what have you done? How did you know you were naked? What has happened here? Does Adam stand up like a man and say, I take full responsibility for my actions. Please forgive me, Lord. He says, it was the woman you gave me. Like, the institution of marriage is, like, ten minutes old, and already he's throwing her under the bus. The minute sin enters the world, he turns on her. And so that relationship gets broken. And so that's the first sin against another person that happens right there. They've sinned against God, now he's sinned against her. And then when it comes to her, she doesn't take responsibility either. She says it was the serpent's fault, right? But I love Adam's answer more, because he says, it's the woman you gave me, Lord, right? I wasn't eating any fruit until you pulled her out of my side. I'm just saying, I was doing fine. And there is something, we're so good at shifting the blame. We're so good at making excuses. The marital problems are never my fault. It's always my spouse's fault. The conflicts at work are never my fault. It's always the other person's fault. The blame shifting starts instantly. Sin enters the world. We start making excuses along the way. Right away. Right away we start blaming others. Right away, we start dodging responsibility. Right away, we don't own our own stuff. Right away. And again, we continue that stuff all the way along. And so the enemies lie that there's going to be no consequences to this falls apart right away. And the consequences fall, and they fall heavy in what we normally call the curse. So the first is for the serpent, for the devil, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity, conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so again, it's... It's a bit of an unusual like it seems to be talking about a literal snake to some extent and and that's maybe why snakes crawl in the dirt But we know from from the bigger story that this is Satan He is talking to and so the snake is gonna crawl and that's gonna remind us of what happened in the garden uh, Every time we see a snake, but the bigger picture story is that between humanity and Satan there's gonna be ongoing conflict that there is going to be constant conflict. Uh, Satan is declaring war on humanity. He's going to bite at their heel. He's always going to be afflicting. He's always going to be attacking. He's always going to be chomping away. But there's a promise in here that's so important because sin has just entered the world. And this is actually the first prophecy we have of Jesus Christ to come and solve the problem. That one is going to come who will crush the head. Of the serpent. One is going to come who will destroy the devil forever. One is going to come who was born of the line of the woman. A human is going to come, more than a human, but someone born into humanity will come. And although even his heel will get bit, he's going to crush the head of the serpent for good. That as sin has entered the world, right away God says, I'm going to solve this problem for you guys. Right away, God says, I will save you from this thing that you have done. You don't save yourself. I will save you. The minute humanity rebels against God, God steps in and says, guys, I have the solution all worked out. I will save you. One will come. And just as humans launched all of this evil into the world, a human and more than a human was going to come who would redeem it all for the world. Jesus was going to come. It's the first Sign that we have that God is going to send the Messiah. Victory is coming. The end has already been predecided. So there's conflicts for the serpent, or there's consequences for the serpent. There's consequences for the woman. To so the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to the children. I'm really sorry about that, ladies. That's. That's what happened. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And lots of debate on that second part and what exactly that means. If you're from a more uh, complementarian background, it means that God is ordaining it, that men are in charge and women will be underneath. If you're more egalitarian, it's not that God is setting that in place as much as he's just predicting, this is what's going to happen now in sinful, sinful humanity, ladies. Men are just going to dominate over you. They're just going to bulldoze you, and that's going to be part of your lot in life. And so there is just a, a consequence falling on the brokenness of that relationship there. And then the consequences fall on Adam, and the ones that fall on Adam are worse, verse 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the gist of this is that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, apparently, uh, even though there was work to do, there was joy to it. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't burdensome. The consequence for Adam is life is hard now. You are leaving paradise. You are leaving perfection. It's going to be a difficult life. It's going to be a life of labor and sweat. Thorns and thistles, life is going to be painful now. There wasn't pain in the garden before. But your life will be difficult. You will work hard for everything that you have. Life is going to be painful. And in the end, you will return to the dust. Death is indeed the consequence of our sin, ultimately. Death is the consequence of our sin. Scripture says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. Satan was wrong. He was lying. The serpent did not have it right. God warned them that if we walked away from him, the source of all life, death was going to be the consequence. Satan lied about that. We bought into it. And what's left is people who are cut off from the source of all life, who are cut off and left on our own. And when you've cut yourself off from the source of all life, death is all that's left. The consequences of sin is death. And yet even as that happens, God has promised that the Messiah is coming. He has promised that one day he will set everything's right, everything right. But even in the moment of the sin, look what happens next. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God himself starts to cover their shame. He doesn't leave them with their little fig leaves that are going to fall apart. God says, I've got got a better solution for you guys. God himself takes care of them. He hasn't stopped loving them. He hasn't stopped caring for them, even in their rebellion. He creates a solution to the problem. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. And interestingly enough, this is the first death that has entered the world, because we don't remove skins from animals surgically. Something had to die in order to cover their shame. And that's the first of many biblical signs that are going to point to the fact that someone's going to have to die to cover our shame. Someone's going to have to die to forgive our sins. Sin must be killed. That's the only way to deal with it. And so there's a a bit of a prophetic picture here of what is coming. As it comes to the end, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So remember I said at the beginning there's two trees in the garden. One of them is the knowledge of good and evil. One of them is the tree of life. To eat of the tree of life is to live forever with God. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is ultimately to become evil because God says don't touch it you don't need it. When we disobey God we become evil and so there is a conflict now Now that mankind has become evil, God says, I can't let them live forever now. If they live forever, then evil will live forever. If they live forever as they are now, sin will live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out and his wife, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's an angel, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve are cut off from life, and so are we as well. That if we had not crossed that line, we could have stayed in the garden forever. We could have eaten of the tree of life. We could have lived with God in perfection forever. But when we cross that line into sin, God says, I can't let sin live forever, so you're cast out. You are are cut off. And the angel is there, and the sword is there to say, you can't come back on your own. You are not making your way back to eternal life on your own. You're not making your way back to the perfect relationship with God on your own. There is a a blockage. There is something there to make sure that that doesn't happen. How are we doing? That's all really bad news. It's truth, but it's really, really bad news. But where Scripture says the wages of sin is death, the consequences of sin are death. If you keep reading that passage, it says the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That as Jesus comes, Jesus comes to bring us back to that perfect relationship with God. He comes to bring us back to eternal life with God. He comes to bring us back to that bond. And he comes to bring us back ultimately to paradise. That even where we have sinned, and even as Christ followers continue to struggle with sin, Jesus forgives our sins because the scripture says that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. By what he did at the cross, we are forgiven. By what he did at the cross, we are set free. And as he goes to the cross and deals with our sin, as he rises to life, he invites us into eternal life with him. And he says, come and follow me, right? Turn from your sin, turn from your evil, come and follow me, and you will follow me all the way to eternal life. And so we say, turn from your sin. Follow Jesus as Lord. Receive the gift of salvation that he has offered. Because the heaviness of Genesis 3, it's right at the beginning. It's not the end of the story. It's highlighting the problem, but it is not the end of the story. And as Jesus comes to bring us back to that place, the day we say yes to Jesus, our soul is saved. We are back in relationship with God. And now as we do that, as we said at the beginning, there is then a process involved. Of okay, now that we have been saved, now that we are right with God, how do we now work out the remainder of our earthly life to live towards that perfection that he originally created us for? How do we work the sin out of our lives and build the perfection in our lives that he has called us to and that he originally created us for? We call that process spiritual formation, and we will be digging into the practical of it a little more as we get going. But today, what we really wanted to do was we wanted to highlight the problem because we'll talk next week on what we are being formed into. It's a little more exciting and more fun to think about the brand new kitchen and not your old crummy one that you're tearing apart. But today we wanted to highlight the problem, because it's not just that we're being spiritually formed to be more like Jesus. We want to acknowledge that we're being spiritually formed from the sinful person that that we have been. But in Jesus, we are not called sinners anymore. We're called saints. And now we're wanting to live towards that as we walk with him and as he works out everything he's working out in our lives here at Meadowbrook, we have called the year 2020 a year of next levels we've set that theme for the year we're wanting to go deeper we're not wanting to do just the same thing over and over and over again and if we do the same thing over and over and over again things stay the same Uh, If we want change to happen, we got to make some changes. If we want growth to happen, we got to step into that growth. If we want to go deeper, if we want to go further, if we want to go to the next level, we actually have to do that. We actually have to make a plan to do that. And so we've talked about what it means to go to the next levels in three different areas. Upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. Upwardly in our walk with God, our personal relationship with Him. Inwardly as we look within and deal with our stuff. And outwardly as we engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ and the people in the world. Around us. So, just to give you some stuff to think about, you'll have to figure out how to apply it exactly for your own life. But in your upward connection to the Lord, as we think about this message, as we think about Adam and Eve, uh, are you actually acknowledging your sin to Him? Are you confessing your sin? Are you aware of it or are you making excuses? It's not my fault, it's my wife, it's my upbringing, I was just having a bad day, it's my childhood. Like, are you making the excuses like Adam and Eve did from the beginning? Or are you able to come before him and just be honest and say, Lord, this is where I'm at. And even better, I can't get out of this by myself. I need your help. Even better than that, I might need someone else's help to help me work through this. So to be honest with him, when Jesus was asked, Lord, how should we pray? He said, make sure you're praying regularly. Forgive me my trespasses, forgive me my debts, forgive me my sins. Confession, acknowledging our sin to him is a regular part of our prayer life. Inwardly is to take that honest inward look. Without excuses, but to say, I see sin areas of my life. I see character that needs attention. I see the things that aren't good. Like it's easy to walk into a 60 year old kitchen and say, well the cabinets need to go. We want to be able to do that with ourselves. We want to be able to say, hey I can be honest with myself about things I'm struggling with without excuses and I can start to make a plan for how I'm gonna work on that. And then outwardly, how has sin affected our relationship with other people? In your marriage? In your parenting? Again, not blaming others, but where is it at work? Is there a step of forgiveness that you need to take? Is there a step of reconciliation you need to take? someone you need to send an email to or a text to today? Is there someone you just need to pray for? Because we're called not just back into perfection this way, we are also called to reconciliation with one another. And I'll add the caveat of there are certain relationships where I think it is okay to keep a healthy distance. And there are certain relationships that are just toxic and damaging and and can be put us in physical harm, even in some cases. And so I'm not saying go run after those, like with, with wisdom. Uh, But except in those extreme cases, we are called to reconcile with one another. So what does that look like to take a step towards seeing the effects of sin reversed in your relationship with other people today? We have an email address here at MeadowbrookQuestions at Meadowbrook.ca and we're happy to take your questions about the sermon uh, to chat about it. We can grab a coffee or whatever else and uh, we'll be happy to keep that conversation going. The Apostle Paul wrote, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. So the sin is the problem and it is our problem and we have contributed to the problem, but Jesus has come to bring the solution. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, of which I am the worst. And yet, he said, because I'm such a terrible sinner, God has shown how big and powerful his grace is. Because if he can forgive me, Paul says he can forgive anybody. If his grace can be at work in my life, it can be at work in anybody's life. Next week, we will talk about being more like Jesus and what that looks like. Today, we're highlighting the problem. But to leave in despair today is not the right thing to take away. Right, to feel convicted of, hey, there's some areas I need to work on and make better, that's, that's perfect. That's what we want to be doing. But we come to this understanding of our sinfulness with a tremendous amount of hope as we do. Because Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And where we deserve death for walking our own way, he has come to bring us back to life with him. And we're going to worship along those lines before we close today. So would you stand to your feet with me, please? The words will be up on the screen. We encourage you to sing along.